that's terrific. And that's terrific. Really terrific. Terrific. A1 terrific. That's not so terrific. You feel terrific afterwards. I'm Melissa Girogrant. And I'm Cheyenne Picardo. And this is Terrific City, a podcast on the city and screen life of 1970s America. Another day's at Mama says she's tired again. No one can even begin to tell her. I hardly know what to say, but maybe it's better that way. So after the horrific 2016 presidential election, I allowed myself to make sense of things uh, the way that I usually do by history. And I went down this deep Nixon history jog. When I saw the pilot of the deuce open with this extended scene in the Port Authority between uh, two characters, Jerry Love and Cece. Love it. Breaking down how Richard Nixon is pimp. How you figure? You president. So we got the front son being the man, right? Right. So like on the one hand, he got his people over there in Paris talking peace. That's just the carrot. Now the stick, got to make those slopes think he crazy enough to do all kind of shit. Bomb the shit out of Vietnam, take over Cambodia or whatever the fuck. So you think he funny? But that man went out of the war just like everybody else, but he can't play it like that. So he got to make those motherfuckers think he do any goddamn thing they can imagine. Shit. If I was him, I'd be flashing nuclear weapons and shit. For real? I'm not saying I'm going to use that shit. I'm saying I'd be like, do not fuck with President Reggie Love because the nigga's crazy and he will drop that big motherfucker on you. Right on. I mean, it's like this here. Let me see, see, you ever really want to have to cut a bitch? I mean, sometimes you want a bitch to think you might, but shit. So Nixon pimp. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. That makes good sense to me. Of course, I was in the shit for a year. You know that, right? A miracle division. They had me up in the Central Highlands. I was just like, I'm. This is. I'm here. It, it reminded me at first of um, the pilot of The Wire, where there's a similar kind of uh, conversation. I think it's about chess. Maybe that comes a little later. But it, it had that vibe of just like, we're just sitting here kind of doing nothing, just hanging out. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do this grand political economy while yeah. we're just like fucking around at the Port Authority. And tell you everything about ourselves as we're having the conversation. Like there was there was something I felt like I hadn't seen character development in a scene like this done this well in forever. It was just so good. Um, I mean, everything from the one person confessing that he had been, you know, in country and like talking about like his experience like in the war. That was the man who said, do not fuck with President Jerry Love, likening himself to Nixon. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, To the fact that it seems like from the jump, Cece is trying so hard um, I mean, right down to every single bit of his, like, outfit, the the production, I mean, the wardrobe design on him is unbelievable. He has that kind of shiny later pimp suit that people associate with, like, 
this like a pinstripe. It's almost like he's putting on a costume, mm-hmm. and the other guy is living his life. But he, there's, you get the sense of something to prove right away, which comes into play later. Um, but I also am just such a big fan of seeing people talking and time happening and things taking as long as they take applauding, applauding HBO for allowing a show to take the time that it needs to take. It was fantastic. When we started out this season in 1971, and I saw the pace at which things unfolded, and also I think this pilot takes place over maybe a handful of days, Mm -hmm. my first thought was, how far into the future are we going to have to go to even get to pornography? Like, we're just stretching out. This is very relaxed. This is very baggy and saggy. It's just like people hanging out, and I love it. And this is, is, I think, what I thought this show might be really good at, Mm -hmm. is like capturing people hanging out. And so this is also the introduction of uh, this character, Lori, uh, who arrives in Port Authority in this moment. And we also get to meet some of the other women around the scene. Um, Lori is sort of immediately thrust into competition with a more experienced uh, street worker named Ashley. Uh, we get another pimp character, Rodney, and we see him try to recruit uh, one of the main characters, Candy, who's an independent uh, street worker. And that that's Maggie Gyllenhaal, who we spent a lot of time digging into her and her character last time. Um, and we, we learn who they are. Um, you know, in all these great little public vignettes, whether that's like hanging out at this diner, which is mm-hmm. sort of this hanging, you know, this hiring hall almost. Mm-hmm. It's like where people go to like kick back between customers and do blow and, you know, bullshit about what they've seen. Mm-hmm. And maybe one of my other favorite scenes, and you said that I think this was like your, oh, second favorite scene. No, I think uh, this is my favorite. The, the, fav- first, yeah, this the, is, the shoe shine scene? Yep. Talk uh-huh. about that. This, this is, is the where, cops, This right? is where the cops and the pimps collide and everybody just kind of exists in the same space and no one seems to really care too much what people are going to and from. They're just talking about life, talking about, you know, their kids on one end. I love the way that everybody treats kids in this movie, where it's like everybody's saying hi to them, giving them a couple of bucks. Oh, like the like, kid who's sitting there reading a Playboy on yeah, the shoe yeah. shine bench while it's this just, scene is happening. They're, they're part of the scenery in this kind of amazing amazing way where you start like seeing like the humanity of how neighborhoods kind of take care of each other something that in again in a different kind of show would be treated as nefarious and predatory exactly. I mean this is just the interconnectedness of the show right mm-hmm. where you know I we, we had a bit of a conversation about this that I think is going to span over multiple episodes but you know we meet black men on the show for the first time as pimps Mm -hmm. but then we meet this black cop and then Mm -hmm. there are these like little kids who are also black Mm -hmm. there are guys who work in the diner who are black like the thing there are sex workers who are black there are sex workers who are black the the racial kind of politics of this I you know I had some hesitation about because it felt like you know there's just so many terrible stereotypical ways you could represent or tell a story about a black pimp I'm not willing to draw any conclusions yet because we've literally just started, right? Mm-hmm. We're in we're in season one, episode one. Um, but what I'm appreciating off the bat is that there are multiple black male characters doing different kinds of work and having different kinds of relationships yeah. with each other, yeah. including right at the opening between Cece and uh, President Reggie Love or yeah. Jerry Love. Um, so. You know, they have two different very attitudes towards towards pimping. And I think that, that watching that play out and watching those complexities play out Which is, is going to be something. The attention to detail, like I said, the wardrobe, what they're discussing, the fact that Nixon came up, the fact that the, someone being in country, like there's there was so much 
many layers to everything about this that came up just within this tiny scene. And I feel like every single person is allowed to have a fully fleshed out character. I mean, Darlene was one of my favorites um, because you saw two scenes with her that were extremely different, extremely different. And in both scenes, you see her being somewhat vulnerable, but also at the same time, very businesslike. And you get a full sense. It's almost like you can see her brain when she's acting. It's amazing. She, it's, one of the, it's probably some of the best acting on the show because you get from very, very little pieces of information just an entire world that's going on behind her eyes that she is not about to let anybody else see, but you're seeing it just written all over her face. It's like her reaction to the movie that she's watching with the client who all he wants to do is watch movies with her. The way that she walks even, right? Yeah. Those, the way that her foot and her heel kind of like wiggles in her heels, the way her heels don't totally fit. Mm-hmm. We see her, you know, in one of those like cheap hotels, which people both lived in and worked in. So it's a little ambiguous when we first see her walk into this space, like, right. oh, is she going home? And then we see this guy in the hallway watching her. Yeah. And, and it builds up to this moment of him doing what looks like assaulting her yeah. and then we realize that this is actually just kind of this a bad role play and yeah. he's not really good at it and no. then he, we end with him like apologizing for go- taking things too far and uh, and her managing the situation in the way that she does which is to ask for more money mm-hmm. and tell him not to do so next time yep and also her interaction with uh, with her pimp who's her pimp which one is he Larry Brown he seems to be at least so far we haven't seen him do very much yet a foil to Cece Cece is so controlling. Yeah. Again, showing some sort of sign of weakness or something to prove. Like there's something, there's something there. And I know that he's going to be a a big character in the show. Like you can tell. Um, But there's something more dangerous about him. And um, it kind of reminds me of someone who I used to work with a really, really, really long time ago. The kind of turn of phrase I will use is it's always more dangerous to encounter a wannabe mafioso. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because they are, again, going to do everything to posture. And it just mm. felt like, um, you know, in the Dom world, it's not you're not pimped per se in the same kind of way, but there often are people in management, many times men, who will kind of, you know, take on that role and take on that trope. And, um, and Cece rang a bell in that sense where it's kind of like, I feel like he is trying very hard and he feels like these are all things that he must do to embody this powerful character and they aren't they aren't fitting he's also yeah. he's much weaker than the women around him mm-hmm. so so Lori, you know the fresh off the bus new girl in port authority yeah she plays him yeah. right we see her at first kind of appear to be the new girl that he recruits and seduces you know through offering her a meal and like an outfit hanging in the back of his caddy mm-hmm. um and she turns on a dime when she's in the caddy with him and it's clear that he's going to manage her and she was like basically you know i've done this before and he's right. like okay then i don't have to give you the sales pitch right. um and also his his regular kind of long-standing girl who works for him ashley uh, it's not totally clear what the full scope of their relationship is. Like my sense is like maybe they were more intimate and now it's more just business. Mm-hmm. But Ashley and Lori are sort of set up. A, he sets them up against each other. Oh, yeah, immediately. And, and then Ashley ends up paying the price for that at the yeah. end. Yeah. And in a way, and again, juxtaposing that scene up against Darlene leaving the movie watching session 
really, really, really late. Like, you know, the and guy waits really on scared. the street until yeah. dawn. There are yeah. no cell phones that uh, she can alert him to say, like, she's okay. And he waits for her, and there is no violence. And, you know, it's a little dour, but there's no violence. But then juxtaposing that to someone not wanting to work in the rain and the getting sliced up at the end. But you seem to have a, a different reaction. Actually, I think we both had similar, like, huh, reactions about that scene. That, as that it not, was the scene... Yeah. That was the scene where I felt like, oh, are we going to go off the rails? Mm-hmm. Because it felt like such an escalation of violence. Mm-hmm. It was also violence against a character that we didn't really know yet. Yeah, she's the most two-dimensional, I think, of any character in this show. And so it was she's hard. the jealous one. It felt like what was actually going on in that scene, it's sort of, you know, the, we were seeing that scene through the eyes of Vinny. Of James yeah. Franco, who I don't even, I think we've gone this far with not even mentioning oh my James God. Franco. <laughs> really? He's everywhere. He's yeah. all over the show. So by this point in the show, Vinny has moved into a cheap hotel in Times Square, and that puts him in proximity to Cece and Ashley. Cece has grabbed Ashley after she complained that she didn't want to work in the rain, and also after he sort of started favoring Lori over her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really do believe he's setting them up against each other. Um, he takes Ashley into the stairwell and, and slashes her with a straight razor mm-hmm. in her armpit. Mm-hmm. It's it's very graphic and scary. Mm-hmm. And the way that we come into the scene is Vinny, who is he sleeping with? Somebody. Somebody. He's somebody his wife knew about. Yeah. Yeah. He's hooking up with somebody. Their afterglow is interrupted by screaming. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of she's prods like, go, him, go, yeah, go, go yeah. and see what's going on. And so we follow him down the hall. He does not intervene. No, which says, I mean, a lot. What would, if I wrote, rewrote it, what would I have him do? And I'm not sure. I, you know, I don't know if I would have written that scene any differently. We do know that Cece's a regular at his bar. Yeah. They know each other. And there's a lot of people doing things that they don't like doing because they have to get by somehow. And Vinny, Vinny is, Vinny's, financial situation that he's put into at the hands of his brother is kind of thrusting him into his an Patty immoral, twin brother his, yeah. who's ringing up all yeah. these mo- ga- gambling debts all over town yeah, um, is like thrusting him into this um, kind of amoral space it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with Vinny's morality play here and Vinny we've already seen you know in multiple complicated relationships we have this you know in, in terms of like what's asked of him and how he mans up or doesn't man up he's very Jamie Lannister he's like the Jamie Lannister of this show who is that I don't know who that sorry, is sorry it's a Thrones thing okay. Jamie Lannister is uh, Cersei's uh, twin brother slash uh, boyfriend. He's the one who bounces over the line of good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy. Vinny, I think, wants to be a good guy, or at least wants to do things he thinks that good guys do. Mm-hmm. He's not making any money in this Brooklyn bar where he gets, like, you know, jacked on the way to the night drop. I mean, he makes his night drop and he gets jacked anyway. He has no money. It's so That's senseless. That's the moment. Yeah. It's the only time it kind of went a little cartoonish. It was like the, the opening scene. It's kind of like I half expected uh, any, like, Death Wish 1 fans will uh, probably remember Jeff Goldblum basically going, I'm like, what are you Was doing? it credited as, like, Goldblum number one? <laughs> yeah, or like, freak number one. One, we two. did see this together at Film Forum, and I remember like when the credits went up, I'm like, that was Jeff Goldblum. Oh, was, my God. Yeah, um, but that opening kind of mugging scene or not quite bugging scene reminded me a lot about Death Wish. It's like right down to the expression on um, Vinny's face. And, it, and it really, I think the point of that scene was to give him a gash in the forehead so it was easier <laughs> for the viewers to differentiate yeah. him from his twin brother, the one who was actually racking up all the gambling debts. Vinny, who's worked most everywhere. <laughs> from Brooklyn you, you were yeah. saying one of your favorite 
favorite scenes was a later scene with Vinny mm-hmm. in his in the bar in Times Square, which is actually the bar in this Korean restaurant that's yeah. like slowly transforming into a Hooters-y kind of or <laughs> pseudo Playboy Club kind of thing where Vinny realizes he's going to make more money if he puts the girls in like, like leotards. Judy Garland leotards. It's like straight up <laughs> yeah. Capizio porn. Yeah. And like it's working. <laughs> guys are coming in. And so then one of the guys who comes in is like oh a God, dude who's actually you. looking for his brother. Yeah, the Patty Duke moment was among my favorite technical moments in the... There's another great slow scene in the bar. There's So there's a succession of mob-connected guys who are trying to hustle Vinny for money mm-hmm. because his brother owes them money. My favorite of them is the guy who just sidles up to the bar in a super casual way and, you know, essentially lets him know, like, look, we both have a job to do, right? We both answer to somebody. Yep. And, like, I know that you don't actually owe this money, but, yep. like, here's what's going to happen next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody is people <laughs> and everybody has a job to do. And all of these jobs are messy and weird. It is everybody trying to make a buck, everybody having a hustle. And why has it taken us so long to talk about candy? We should talk about candy. Yeah, we should get to candy. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, candy, this is this is Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. She's an independent sex worker or prostitute, um, just because the term sex worker is not used on the show and it didn't really exist in reality yet either. So we might say prostitute sometimes interchangeably talking about her. Not that that's a word she uses either for we herself. We won't say prostituted women. She's has her clute moment. Um, at the end of the night, you know, it's dawn. She's rolling up to her apartment. Oh, I figured out where it was. It was like a nice neighborhood. It's like a neighborhood neither of us could like afford to live in now, mm-hmm. but like she's living in yep. in 1971. And she lays out her money um, in a series of envelopes that are marked for different people. One's like for her mom. And then she's keeping her books and her averages of what she's making. And mm-hmm. this was like my favorite scene with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- maybe the birthday boy scene was a second but there was something about this quiet moment in her apartment it isn't even the cliche of like she pulls off her makeup and yanks yeah. off her wig and now she's her real self it's like or she runs to the shower yeah she just yeah. The, if she lays on the bed for a moment and then she pulls herself up and sits down at her desk and does her bookkeeping yeah there is no real there is no work her and not work her it's a different hour of the same day it's great my favorite scene with her in it is the scene where they are all shooting the shit on the street and she Laurie, and like the other women yeah, that Laurie she works with and yeah. like you know and everybody comes together and they start actually kind of talking about you know what it's like and in any and sharing other, gossip about the sharing pimps gossip too. about the pimps in any other and any other thing this would feel like a cliche it would feel like expository i know from experience when sex workers get together they talk and they talk a lot and it's always entertaining. And if you want to go to the best, you know, dinner party in the world, just, you know, that's the one you want to get invited to. And it's just a smoke break. It's just a smoke and, break. And also, like, Lori shows up with cigarettes as sort of, like, the way to get people to talk to her. Yeah. And, and you know, while there is a little bit of kind of um, – it's not hierarchy, which we'll talk about in other episodes. But, it, like, you know, there's a little bit of hierarchy and, like, inexperienced freshman versus senior kind of, like, situation going on. But it's not – mean-spirited no there's nothing like oh no this person's going to cut into my bottom line there's none of that we even see at this maybe it'll take us to the birthday boy scene originally the uh, sex worker known as thunder thighs rolls up to their car a car full of like youngins Mm -hmm. i mean i'm assuming they're of age who the fuck knows but whatever (laughs) birthday it's my 18th birthday so i'm gonna go in my mom's station wagon with all of my friends (laughs) pooling all of our money together um, to lose my virginity, and oh my and so they, you know, and honestly, this 
it is both racist and true. It's like yeah. they reject Slender Thighs. Yeah. They don't want to see her. Yeah. They see like the skinny blonde yeah. with the wig. I mean, she's yeah. not blonde, but yeah. behind her, her and, and Thunder Thighs comes up and, you know, throws the call to Candy. And the funny thing is that there's no there's no animus about that. There was no like there was no. It's like, like there may be on a deeper level, but in the yeah. moment it was like, I mean, yes, yeah, there's like a, a systemic animus perhaps, yeah. but like, but in the moment there's not like, oh, they want you. I'm going to give you like a dirty look. There's none of that. This was even kind yeah. of set up in the Port Authority scene where it's like this like gorgeous black woman walks by with like a huge ass and hair almost as wide as mm-hmm. her ass. And the, and the two pimps were sitting there. One is like, oh, you couldn't handle that? And the other is like, oh, no, I could handle that. But the white guys that are my yeah. client, the clientele can't handle that. Yeah. And it's just acknowledged that, like, this seems both true and racist. Yeah, I mean, well, that's that's sex work. Um, <laughs> sex work, sex work uh, has a lot of um, baggage that comes from, I mean, when you're dealing with people's kind of, like, primal fantasies, those primal fantasies are programmed by people's uh, upbringing and with all that comes the stereotyping and racist baggage that you know is you know it's part of it's part of the game and sadly also part of the marketing. Um, so uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that a lot considering this uh, this show is about porn. We're definitely going to get into a lot of that. I'm wondering how they're going to get us there. I mean, we already see Candy's like a good explainer. Like I can I can see times where like a sex worker. And I've certainly been in this position where you're just like, I could tell you why what you're doing is fucked up, but I don't really feel like wasting my time. I kind of just want to get out of here. Right. So when she, the, the context for this is she, the birthday boy who comes to lose his virginity, um, surprise, surprise, like comes in like three seconds. And, and so he like wants to go again. And I think, what was it, $30 for the half hour mm-hmm. plus 10 for the room. And and so he's like, I should be able to go again, though, because I was really easy. And and Candy, who's sort of just, you know, half paying attention, half fixing her hair and her lipstick in the mirror, you know, says to him, but mm-hmm. to the mirror, really, to herself, um, why this is an unreasonable request. Someone comes in, knows just the car he wants. Doesn't dick around, doesn't need a long test drive, doesn't argue about the color or whatever. Does he give him the car for less? Does he pay less? And the guy who comes in, takes forever, gotta drive five or six cars, talk about the radio, the white walls, everything else before he's done and ready to buy? No. He doesn't give the easy customer two cars for the price of one, right? This is my job, Stuart. And then, of course, the kid manages to find, oh, what is it, a check? A personal check. Someone gave him birthday money and a check, and he, he wants to sign it over to her. And also asks for change. Oh, my goodness. Which is just, like, ridiculous. But she kind of takes pity on him. Right. And, and takes the check. And takes the check. Confirming it's a local bank. Please, anybody out there who's listening, how If you know about world, 70s banking. Because I'm trying to figure out how in the world is her name not, her, her real name not going to end up on that. Well, I guess it doesn't have to end up on the check in that moment. But I don't really know. Like, that was is, the one thing it was like. Yeah. A confusing bit to me. Like, oh God, like isn't he going to end now. up seeing her name? Hmm. You yeah. Know? It was more than just like, don't check a check because it might bounce. It's like this is your like your auntie's check. It's yeah, probably this good. Check, this check's good. But like, you know, <laughs> we know your auntie's good for it. Yeah, auntie, <laughs> stop bouncing your birthday check. Actually, auntie is probably the one who's going to get the canceled check in the mail, not him. Oh yeah. So she won't even or whoever it was from. Mm. Um, that that was that was another beautiful a beautiful moment. It was my birthday today. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. 
Something that, that absolutely blew my mind is that uh, in the New York Times review of the series that came out ahead of the pilot, uh, the critic actually says the phrase, sex work is work, as Yay. in this show makes it clear that sex work is work. Yay. And it was, I don't know if this is going to be true universally, but it seems like the critics have a more nuanced and broad understanding of the economics of sex work than some of the showrunners when they are called to give interviews about it. This might just come down to editing, right? You can edit yourself on the page to sound, or they might just be bad at talking about their work. Like one of the, the, I think it was in The Guardian, George uh, Pelicanos, talked about the the show as a parable for the pornification of culture. It could make you think that what you were about to watch was like warmed over Andrea Dworkin because I am the kind of person who will go and say like, well, what week is it? It's not enough to be like, what year is it? Like, like what week is this happening? Mm-hmm. So the NYU students uh, in the Deuce are sitting for a final and it's warm outside, which puts us in like May. Mm-hmm. May 1971 is right ahead of a huge crackdown on prostitution and peep shows in Times Square, which we gave you a field piece about last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also right on the cusp of the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, This is the the leak from the Rand Corporation uh, assessment of the Vietnam War, the failures of the Vietnam War, and also exposing the lies of uh, past presidents and also the Department of Defense about the Vietnam War. This is the documents that, that Daniel Ellsberg painstakingly Xeroxed because there were no thumb drives then. And they appear in June in the New York Times. A week later, Clute comes out mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. And so just to push even harder on my crackpot theory that I have no idea if this is going to play out, this to me is sort of this underlying transition of power where the pimps at the beginning are likening themselves to Nixon and and, and also kind of like alternate schools of thought on Nixon. It's like, well, Nixon is, you know, he's sending um, Kissinger to Paris to like look like he's brokering peace in Vietnam, but what's really going on is he's scaring the shit out of, uh, of, of the world by flexing our power in Vietnam. And he doesn't really want to do that. He doesn't want to be in the war. No one wants to be in this war, but... But, you know, that's the stick. And I think that that kind of power structure, particularly the paranoia that comes with that power structure, is unraveling both on the level of politics and in the lives of the characters. Mm -hmm. And that's like a super deep parallel. The Pentagon Papers don't undo Nixon. Nixon's response to the the Pentagon Pentagon Papers Papers. undo Nixon, right? Nixon wasn't really directly implicated Mm -hmm. in what's in the Pentagon Papers. But what he did in response was to send a team of just losers to to break into the psychiatrist's office Mm -hmm. of Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel Ellsberg, who, you know, like a lot of people who, who, you know, take on this role as a leaker, like they get smeared and they get dragged through the press. And Ellsberg pops up later in different people's memoirs and books as like his sexual life. And I'm sure this was like a target that that Nixon tried to exploit. And that same group of weirdos, right, then go on to break into the Watergate. So this, this level of control and trying to hold on to these final shreds of control, this like dying order, I'm seeing that on a certain deep level that perhaps I am primed to see. I'm willing to believe this is my crackpot theory, but I feel like it's there in the background. So we're at the beginning of the show also, right? We are are free to speculate wildly about where this is going to go. It seems like from the pacing, we're mostly going to be staying in 1971. And my first response to the visual look of the show, the fashion, and also this opening conversation about Nixon in Vietnam is, this is going to be about transitions. This is going to be about the end of Nixon. This is going to be about the end of Vietnam. This is going to be about moving from the 60s to the 70s. 
And it's going to be about moving from street prostitution to porn. And maybe that's the saddest part of all. So we have one note for David Simon. One, one slightly mean note. The opening title sequence. It was really the only thing that made me go, oh dear. I I'll wish... say one nice thing about them. Yeah. The funk, I'm glad we got a little soul, a little funk in the show. Yes. Like, I'm curious where the music's going to go. The music selection's fantastic. However. Can't we replace all of those eight billion shots overlapping each other with just like the first six shots of the opening credits for Night Court. How many street <laughs> legs did we have in the opening credits? street legs? That's, this is like the headless wandering sex legs. It just feels like someone was made to rush it and it's like, no, more marquees, more of this. Put as many of these things as possible in it. I was it's like, New York. It's Times Square. It's light bulbs. Ah. It's marquees. It's sleazy. It's this. It's, it, was, it was an overkill. Right. Especially considering everything else about the show is so languid and gorgeous. And I think we just need a couple marquees, cop on the beat, bodega. You know, that's basically. Like I just I needed my butter roll. That's yeah. all I need. And my and my little Greek coffee cup. And I'm I'm good. So just some notes for you, David yeah, Simon. We, we expect to see you do better next Just time. recut the credits. Like, re- recut the titles. Like, you know, recut the titles. We'll be happy. <laughs> that's enough for that. On July 26, 1971, the following story, filed by Gail Shee, ran as the cover of New York Magazine. We returned to the streets where it took place to bring it to you. Wide open city, part one, the new breed. By 10 at night, they have ringed the streets around the Waldorf like an anklet of zircons. Horseface, Little Tiffany, Dutchman, The street names they assume are impersonal and sexually neutral, like their work. Three play decoy for the hotel's private guard while two slip upstairs in the service elevator. They cruise the corridors, knocking on random doors. Hi, sugar, want company? Don't say no or I might have to scream rape. The guest flashes on how his prominent name will look in the morning papers. Publisher tangles with V-girls. It's a $20 touch, work free. Zoom back down to the east lobby, powder up in the mirror wall keeping an eye on the ballroom elevators. Okay, I'll be up after your banquet, Congressman. Just give me your room number. Then out the 49th Street door, working in pairs now to lure some dumb Iowa daddy up to a trick pad in the Belmont Plaza. You take a shower first, sweetie, then we're gonna do like you've never been done before. While he's panting his fantasies under the hot spigot, it's El Splito. Airmail is closed down the air shaft and run like hell with the wallet because as anyone knows, daddy Iowa is too moral a man to make a scene in the altogether. What a score, 500 and a wad of credit cards. Tomorrow the cards will be sold to a fence down the street from the Waldorf. Tell all the weary girls plugging their lives away at 99 a week for Ma Bell. Tell them their future lies in the street. These are working girls of a violent new breed. They work on their backs as little as possible. More often they work in cars with partners and in hallways and in the open on sidewalks running through our Cardinal Theater District and surrounding our grand hotels. The bulk of their business is not the dispensation of pleasure. It's to mug, rob, swindle, knife, and possibly even to murder their patrons. 
Petty crimes have always been associated with prostitution, but only in the last year have New York's working girls, as they call themselves, made a habit of violence. Early this spring, police began a crackdown because of a rash of news reports of attacks sprung by this new breed of hookers on their unassuming trips. All within a month, Pasquale Batero, 50, a visiting glass manufacturer from Cuneo, Italy, was stabbed to death outside the Hilton Hotel. Hundreds of prostitutes were questioned. Franz Joseph Strauss, former defense minister of West Germany, was mugged and robbed in his career tarnished back home by a nasty scuffle with three oddly masculine prostitutes in a car outside the plaza. Charles Adams, the cartoonist, was the victim of a particularly malicious act and also executed by a group of car-borne hookers. They stopped him past Bloomingdale's. He refused to turn around. Prostitutes, living in a permanent condition of humiliation, are hypersensitive to insult, and the cruelest insult, of course, is to be ignored. So when Charles Adams refused to turn around, the girl splashed a little acid on the back of his head. Symbolic rape, it could be called. For in a crazy, incoherent form, the message of women's lib has seeped through to prostitutes. Why give one's body into the bargain when men go about crime so much more directly? Why not attack the John, take his money, and be done with it? The public has become aroused. This is not the sort of behavior one expects from ladies of the evening. Policemen are currently flashing their newly issued Polaroids in the startled faces of streetwalkers. The photographs will supposedly supply evidence in court. A New York Times editorial charges that not since the Jimmy Walker era 40 years ago has Midtown appeared so wide open to prostitutes, pimps, pornographers, and human degradation of intolerable variety. Mayor Lindsay plans a drive against all such abuses. Ordinarily, police drives against prostitution are about as effective as pacification programs in Vietnam. Police respond to the immediate public outcry. Their street sweeps last only until the courts are choked with insubstantial cases and a louder cry comes back from the district attorney's office to the police commissioner's office. Lay off. Meanwhile, the girls, evicted from one territory, simply move to another, wait for calm, and return. The local populace supports them. One expects they always will. Please welcome to Terrific City, Alex Vitali. Alex Vitali is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College, and his latest book, The End of Policing, attempts to jog public discussion of policing by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control and demonstrating how the expanded role of the police is inconsistent with community empowerment, racial and economic justice, even public safety. He's also the author of City of Disorder, How the Quality of Life Campaign Transformed New York Politics, and his writing appears frequently in The Nation, The New York Daily News, The Gotham Gazette, and The New Inquiry. Alex, welcome. Thank you so much. So we're going to kick this off uh, with the deuce, though our conversation will certainly be more wide-ranging than that. Um, and one of, the, one of the things about the show that we've noticed so far, like other TV by David Simon, The Wire, and Treme, uh, is that policing is depicted as sort of one corruptible system that bumps up against all of these other systems, the underground economy, organized crime, politics, journalism. And I guess that kind of takes for granted that the police have 
been corrupted. <laughs> that's like something that uh, is not part of them. That's something that, you know, how all of these systems interacting does to the police. Uh, could you give us to kind of a corrective on that? Can you break down for us how, you know, what we sometimes think of as like police corruption or bad behavior uh, is present at the birth of modern policing? Yeah, there's so much of this kind of forgetting of the past. So, for instance, right now we have all this talk about how Jeff Sessions is bringing back the war on drugs as if somehow we ever didn't have a war on drugs. Uh, so, similarly, when we hear, oh, no, there's police corruption, this assumes there was some period without police corruption, which, of course, is not the case. Uh, the earliest origins of policing are tainted with both official policy that played a horribly negative role in the lives of working class people, but also has always been suffused with the individualized corruption of, of taking money to look the other way, especially in relationship to vice, uh, something that uh, we can't include enough of in our thinking about Times Square. So, uh, you know, 19th century police were poorly paid officially, but often made money, especially detectives, by engaging in the collaboration with thieves, the collecting of rewards for stolen goods that often they were in cahoots with the stealing of them. Uh, a lot of this money was totally under the table and not declared, so you had uh, police commanders like Clubber Williams who had yachts and big homes in Connecticut on an income that could barely support formally, you know, a little bungalow in Brooklyn. Um, so, yeah, corruption has always been a central part of policing, especially in relationship to vice. And as we sort of move up into the period that the deuce is taking place in, 1972, we were talking about this before we were getting started, the Knapp Commission, which I think, at least in New York lore, we think of this as like, well, that was the line in the sand where we addressed corruption, Serpico, et cetera, and it's all different now. And that doesn't also sound like it's exactly the case either. Well, corruption takes different forms in different circumstances. So up until the playing out of the Knapp Commission, uh, detectives in particular were on the take in a systematic way, mostly from the gambling industry, but also from sex work and drugs in some cases. Uh, and this was done uh, in a very organized way with funds working up the chain of command. Uh, we never found out exactly how far up the chain of command, but very far up the chain of command, large amounts of money. And of course, Frank Serpico's life was threatened repeatedly uh, for not getting officers in trouble, but for eliminating this significant source of income for his fellow detectives. After the Knapp Commission, we do see a reduction in this kind of systematic, highly organized corruption that pervaded the whole ranks of the Detective Bureau. Instead, we see outbreaks uh, or clusters of corruption in which a kind of crew of officers will come together and start ripping off drug dealers, for instance, or will develop a relationship with someone running a sex business where they get sexual favors for looking the other way, take bribes, things like that. And those kinds of corrupt acts are uncovered on a routine basis, but don't tend to 
suffuse themselves through whole divisions of, of the police? One of the, maybe the misconceptions I brought to, to the show and to this period is that the 70s was the beginning of kind of this cleanup mentality in the police department. The idea that the police are sort of like the moral authority in the city and that this is, you know, what we pay them to do. And reading City of Disorder and also in the end of policing, I think the important takeaway from both of them is that the police's job has actually changed over time and our understanding of what their job is and how much that extends into our lives has changed over time. Um, and that what it sounds like was actually going on in the 70s is the 70s is like the boogeyman that's invoked to justify the cleanup policing that becomes standard practice later. You know, one of the things that's going on in the 70s, too, thing is, you know, white flight is happening, disinvestment is happening, the fiscal crisis is happening. Uh, the, like Washington saying, like, we're not going to bail New York yeah, out. Yeah, we're not going to, you know, the, the city couldn't make its payroll. Large numbers of police were laid off. Morale within the police department was terrible. At the same time, they're dealing with corruption scandals, et cetera. So there was very much a kind of laissez-faire attitude among the police during that period. Now, part of what I argue is that police are always limited in their ability to directly affect serious crime. What they can have a more direct impact on is low-level visible disorder. You know, if the police want to clear out a particular park or a certain street corner, they can do that through repeated action. That doesn't mean that you can't buy drugs anymore or you can't buy sex anymore. It just means you can't do it right there if they really want to go after that. But in the 1970s, the factors of sort of declining numbers, low morale, a loss of a sense of mission combined with the effort to clean up the department and be more professional meant that there was very little focus on low-level disorder. So things like street-level drug dealing, open prostitution, and eventually the problems we see in, in the 80s of, of widespread public homelessness, squeegee men, public hand, those problems get out of control and the police say to the public who complains about these problems, uh, that's not our problem. Those are social problems. We can't really do much about those. We're here to deal with serious crime. We're crime-fighting professionals. And if we get our hands too messed up and all that low-level stuff, that's just going to bring back all the corruption and bribery and uh, uh, corrupt relationships that, that we had before. Mm -hmm. And in a way, then, maybe what people are saying they don't want to return to, whether that's you know, Mayor Bill de Blasio, whether that's folks at neocon think tanks, when they say they don't want to return to that era, they also mean they don't want to return to that style of policing. Well, I think a lot of what they're afraid of, yeah, is disorder. Because it's really disorder and these so-called kinds of quality of life problems that people actually experience on a regular basis I mean, very few people have, are directly affected by a homicide. And so when you go to a community meeting and you say, what are your concerns? They tend to be very minor, quotidian kinds of concerns. There's a homeless guy who, you know, is making a mess in the park and the kids can't go to the park. Not, 
oh, there was a guy with a gun six blocks away three weeks ago, because I don't know anything about that. That's far removed from my everyday experience. So there was a real sense that it was the everyday disorder that was making the city unlivable. And some people express that as a concern about crime, but usually what they're really talking about are acts of public disorder. Wait, so is there, so just to kind of clarify, yep. um, there's a, so which is the more or less likely to be corrupted version, the one that is more uh, yeah. associated with cleaning up uh, public disorder, litter on the streets, you know, people not picking up after their dog, or the version that is going after high-level crime like homicide and things like that? Neither. I don't think, I think corruption is kind of an independent consideration for these things. I mean, there was a period during the 1980s where concern about corruption and drugs was so widespread that Mayor Dinkins and the police chief at the time told patrol officers not to engage in street-level enforcement because the risks of corruption were so high. There was so much money in play and they had constant discoveries of police corruption. And so in any system, there is a risk of that kind of corruption. And do you think that there were certain, was it cultural from precinct to precinct or was it overarching in general? I think it was pretty arching, overarching. I think this, this was an, an overarching orientation of the department, which is that we're professionals, we're not concerned with low-level disorder, and this is not to say that there wasn't still corruption, but it was more isolated. Uh, it wasn't systemic. When we move into the quality of life era, there's also still pockets of corruption. Um, but there's also this aggressive enforcement of these kind of visibly disorder, uh, disordered behaviors. And that's where we get the kinds of policing that we almost take for granted in New York now, whether that's the low-level marijuana policing, turnstile jumping, loitering with intent for prostitution, all that stuff that funnels a huge amount of people into the system. This is the moment when that is all really getting baked into our culture of policing and what we take for granted about policing. It all comes together around the uh, broken windows theory, which is this idea that if we leave low-level disorder unchecked, it will lead naturally to more serious crime and to neighborhood abandonment and disinvestment. And that was a, a very kind of common sense neoconservative artic uh, article or idea that would allow people to feel like aggressively policing homeless people and poor people would help turn the city around. And that the problems of urban America were problems of low morality and bad public behavior, not problems of widespread disinvestment. And that makes and Times economic. Square a great boogeyman, right? But you can blame Times Square, not Washington. Exactly, you exactly. You can blame poor black communities not cutting back schools. And so Times Square becomes really an emblem of these problems of disorder, so that when people think back of the bad old days, they have the image of you know, graffiti-covered subway trains and the crime and disorder that was present in Times Square in that period. Even though crime in that period was actually lower than it was in the 80s and 90s. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of mythology. So that, when, you, when you say crime was lower, um, the, 
explain like statistically what that so means. Usually when we talk about crime rates, what we're talking about are the so-called index crimes, things like homicide and rape and aggravated assault, burglary, etc. So those are serious crimes, the kinds that most people normally would think should be a, a primary police priority. So those crimes actually get worse in the mid-80s and then again in the early 90s. And the city's highest crime rate year is essentially around 1991. Uh, I think part of the sense of Times Square being out of control in the 1970s is not because there was so much crime. It was again tied to what people perceived as disorder which often was entirely non-criminal and had more to do with the kind of uh, social transformations coming out of the 60s. New attitudes about sexuality, new freedoms in terms of race relations, so that when people see poor non-white people, maybe with some gender confusion thrown in and public sexuality, these are all behaviors that were extremely disconcerting to a lot of the kind of white middle and upper class uh, commuters who were going into the Port Authority bus terminal and catching a subway at Times Square to go down to Penn Station. And they found those public expressions of the sexual revolution and the civil rights movement deeply threatening because it turned on its head all their taken for granted understandings about proper social relations. One of the, the examples that you mention, um, I think this is in City of Disorder, but it might also be in End of Policing is that in the Nixon administration, they clearly understood that they could use the anti-war movement, the black liberation movement as scapegoats. And so that if they were gonna start a really intense war on drugs, that was a way to sort of, that was a direct way to, to attack the black community. Well, Nixon was interested in trying to appeal to the white fear that emerged as a result of the advances of the civil rights movement. So as blacks gain economically, but also socially and culturally, their place in American society, uh, there's white resentment and fear of that. And Nixon said, well, if we can mobilize that politically, that could be very advantageous, but we're not gonna succeed in bringing about, back segregation. The cork's off the bottle, but we can maybe come up with something different that we can use to kind of put blacks in their place. And advancing the federal role in law enforcement was one of the strategies for doing that. And historically, law enforcement has been primarily a local phenomena tied to state law. And Nixon's people figured out that drugs was the perfect nexus for both targeting the populations they were interested in, student radicals, African Americans, Mexican Americans along the southern border, and because a lot of drugs cross state and national borders, they could make an argument for why it was appropriate for the feds to get involved. And that's part of what's invoked too, I think, right, is sort of disorder. I don't know if we mentioned it specifically, but the idea of seeing people buy drugs in public or doing drugs in public, all of that gets criminalized on, on the same level as you know people being scared they're going to get stabbed on the subway because all of this is sort of treated as one thing leads to another. Right. And the media is 
am very directly responsible for inf- like reinforcing that uh, that which actually leads me to a question I'm curious about how uh, complicit is media in convincing the people that the police are the answer to this problem? Well, they're central. In uh, The End of Policing, I talk about the kind of shows that I watched in the 1970s, like Adam 12, which was produced in direct conjunction with the LAPD. And the LAPD during that period, uh, that show begins in 1968, is coming out of the Watts riots and the profound crisis of legitimacy that they're facing in the African-American community and more broadly. And they begin to support the production in Hollywood of a series of films and television shows that try to portray the police in a politically neutral, racially sympathetic, professional uh, mindset that the police are just here to help, they're here to serve and protect, everyone's equal before the law, and this is a kind of myth-making that they're engaged in. And a lot of that work is about portraying police as a kind of thin blue line between the chaos and disorder of crime and the changing social mores of the period and Western civilization that they feel like they're defending. White suburbanites. White suburbanites and white urbanites and white elites who are concerned about, you know, declining property values in the city, et cetera. You mentioned Watts, which uh, of course triggered um, my memory to one of my favorite kind of strange outliers to that series of cop shows, The Mod Squad. Yeah, so The Mod Squad comes out the same year as Adam 12, 1968, and it attempts to take a more, I would say, sophisticated and liberal approach. We think of Adam 12 as a police procedural, very focused on uh, the day-to-day work of policing, the tools, the laws, the inside of the station. The Mod Squad is about building legitimacy in a different way. It's imagining a multiracial, hip police force that is acting in the best interests of a broader public that's understood to be multiracial and culturally complex. But the root core of what they're doing is still enforcing laws that fall disproportionately on poor people and poor people of color in particular. And that part of it, that basic questioning of the mission of police never really emerges in any of these shows. One thing that that your work really begs us to think about is like, well, what if it was different? Like, what if this wasn't what the police were doing? What if these weren't the myths that the media was generating about the police? And this might be a, a reach, but just because it's physically changed so much, but I'm trying to imagine what a Times Square would look like if the 70s weren't used as this boogeyman, if quality of life and broken windows policing hadn't become the dominant narrative of how the police should work. Even though I think we should say broken windows theory, it's unfair to call it a theory. Like there isn't a lot of basis for this. It, it really is a myth. Um, that that disorder, you know, policing disorder would protect us. Um, but I'm trying to imagine a, a Times Square and a New York without that, if that hadn't come into play. Well, you know, the very origins of Times Square was as a kind of working class playground. 
and it was a kind of shady place, a kind of lewd, bawdy place, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. But it was, it had those qualities for a white working class, a, a new immigrant working class, and it actually played a role in acculturating and assimilating people into American society. What changes is that it becomes a playground for non-white people and non-heterosexual people and people exploring, you know, their sexuality in various ways. And that was what was so disconcerting to people. But for many of the people there, it was actually quite liberating. So you have authors like the science fiction author Samuel Delaney Jr. who says that Times Square was incredibly important for his own personal development as a gay man, that it was a liberated space where people were exploring new sexualities and new ways of relating. And so if we could have imagined preserving Times Square as a kind of working class playground that was accepting of racial difference, sexual difference, and find some way to manage people who were perhaps predatory, maybe find a way to validate those behaviors in indoor spaces, but even indoor spaces in Times Square were criminalized. You know, they would go into the movie theaters and into public bathrooms and attempt to criminalize these, these behaviors and these populations, really. So instead of thinking automatically those people, that behavior is bad, is to be criminalized, we could have figured out a way to facilitate it in, in a manner that reduced real negative impacts like crime, overdoses, et cetera, instead of just this one-size-fits-all vilification. And it's taken us a long time to revisit that, you know, under the rubric of now what we're calling criminal justice reform, right? Like we're hearing some American cities, even New York, think about the idea of a supervised drug consumption site to think about the idea of decriminalizing prostitution, which are, you know, fancy blue ribbon camp uh, criminal justice reform uh, commission out of the speaker's office and now with the mayor on board are saying, you know, we should decriminalize these things. You know, my concern though is that still the most of the discussion about police reform looks like either Adam 12 or the Mod Squad. <laughs> <laughs> that it's either about professionalizing the police but making no change to their basic mission, you know, a kinder, gentler war on drugs, war on poverty, war on crime, or it's a mod squad version of, well, we're gonna have a more diverse police force that understands the community, but is still pursuing the same basic mission. And no one is really questioning, or not enough people are questioning, the actual mission the police have been given. Should police have anything to do with drug enforcement? with managing people's sexual lives, with dealing with the problems of mass homelessness and untreated mental illness. These are all real problems. These are all these things can produce real problems, but the question is whether or not armed police are the best, most effective, or most just way of addressing these problems. And that is the part of the conversation that I think needs to be highlighted. Before we let you go, can we ask you uh, what piece of media from the 70s most defines New York to you, speaks to you the most? Well, you know, I didn't grow up in New York, so, you know, viewing it from afar, uh, I remember things like Fort Apache, the Bronx, the police 
a most almost entirely white police force in the Bronx as the Bronx is crumbling and the profound culture clash. But in it is the one white police officer who's trying to connect with the world around him while everyone in the precinct is sort of pulling him back and everyone in the community is sort of pushing him away. And this sense that, you know, a conflict is brewing that's not going to be resolved through good intentions and individual goodwill, that the problems run much deeper than that. We're going to have to assign that one as homework. Yeah. Uh, and the Mod Squad. And the Mod Squad. <laughs> yeah, come back for more discussions of police TV, because um, there's a lot of it. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, folks, if you want to learn more about Alex and his work, you can go to Alex vitali.info that's v-i-t-a-l-e dot info follow him on twitter at a vitali and of course you can order his book the end of policing which comes out on october 10th 2017 from verso books thanks for joining us my pleasure Last week, we assigned you some homework. We suggested that you watch the 1971 film Clute, starring Jane Fonda as a call girl and model about town in New York in 1971. In fact, Clute came out in June 1971, which is around the same time as the pilot episode of The Deuce is taking place, as far as we can tell. One of the things that made Clute feel sort of like a proto- version of the deuce is it is an unapologetic dark and paranoid new york um now having seen the pilot of the deuce i feel like actually the deuce exists in a far more optimistic world oh, yeah. <laughs> i don't know if you feel that way but it's like you know even though there's like trash and grit and whatever when i see jane fonda navigating the city of 1970 in new york as her character brie daniels these encounters with all kinds of men who want things from her. Mm -hmm. It feels, um, maybe it's because of the thriller, but like the stakes are high. The deuce yeah. by comparison, it's like gritty, but it, it doesn't have that same sort of claustrophobic paranoia. Here's what I like, I don't know. I mean, I played some hide and seek in my day or tag or anything that there was like a concept of base. Um, Clute felt like every time anybody left their apartment, they were going from base to base and everything outside of the interior space was danger, 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 danger. In the deuce, it was like claustrophobic inside whatever interior space there was. And when you went outside the space, that's when you were able to, you know, feel your fantasy as it were. And so it was kind of like a flip side of Clute to me. Yeah, like the social life of the deuce and the dramatic life of the deuce is all in public. Mm -hmm. And what happens behind closed doors is actually where there is danger. Yeah. Whereas Brie Daniels' apartment in, in Clue is like her her respite. It's her solace. And that's one of the places where she's actually under attack, right? That's why it's it's so scary. Yeah, it's like the it's like the psycho moment is like, you know, the you know, the shower should be your safe space and that ends up being the most upheaved of the upheaved spaces. If that's a word. Yeah, it, it, she also, um, I don't know, but I, how I understand Brie Daniels as a character is Brie Daniels is not like a call girl on the way to some bigger, greater, nobler plan. This is just how you survive in the city in this moment where, you know, she is trying to 
you know, be successful in this glamorous industry as a model, that it's like not coming together for her. But I don't view that as we, the audience, are supposed to like see Brie as sort of somebody who's a failure at one thing, so she's forced to do this other thing. Mm-mm. Not only that, there's that parallel in the scene where she is at the model call. You stand up, please. And that's where you start seeing this visually striking and I think emotionally striking parallel between civilian work and sex work. All right, can I see your, your eyes? Let, let me see your hair. Take your hair, your hat off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Too pretty. Too pretty. Too pretty. She's, she's kind of exotic. Color. That's the the color. coloring is great. Yeah, I don't know. It's not quite it, though. No, not really. Hello. Can I see your hands? Thank you. She's so funny. Yeah. No. No. Hi. She is great. Yeah. Beautiful eyes. Yes, lovely. Hi. That's the s- coloring, you know? Yeah, let me see you smile. Your I hands. think she has that cross between... She's great, but I've seen you before. Yes, Have you I done think any so. cosmetic ads? Yes, I have. You have? A conflict. It's How could they to be send a new face. with a conflict? Don't I don't believe Call this. that agency. Oh. Irene Dunn would have had it. That would be perfect. C-minus. C-minus. The civilian work example seems to be a much more exploitative, explicitly exploitative example than anything that you see that she does in her sex work life. It's so dramatic, too, where she walks out of this model call where there's just like a row of women that we see uh, spreading out around her, immediately goes to a phone booth, calls, I guess, the service that she works for, mm-hmm. asks for like a quick half hour. Hey, Trina Bree. Yeah, listen, I could use a quick 50. You got a commuter for me? Terrific. And then you see her kind of move into a space where she's one woman on her own in control in this this confined environment. Like, I think when you also pair that with her conversations with her psychiatrist, which Mm -hmm. recur throughout the film, you know, then she's sort of like giving commentary on like, well, in this part of my life, I have control. In this other part of my life, I don't. In this part of my life, I'm paid to be an actress. Outside of being a call girl, Mm -hmm. things are more uncertain and I don't, you know, I I don't have that much control over my own destiny in my own life. Right. And my procedural brain spiked at the idea that she calls a service. Um, A lot of people probably aren't aware of that kind of um, configuration of the industry, like that there might be someone who does your bookings for you or um, that it isn't necessarily a pimp situation. You never really... In her, um, you see that she has left a pimp situation for whatever situation she is in at that point. Oh, you mean the guy in the nightclub that she ends up going back to with all of the women around him? But when she's calling the service, that service is not a pimp per se. It seems like something else that kind of is in, that that feels very familiar. It feels more like an agent. An agent, yes. Which is kind of interesting because in the acting world and the model world, you also would likewise have a booking agent who tries to market you using whatever they can to market you. And And her only interaction with them is when she wants to call them to get work. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, this is not someone who's pestering her, stalking her. In fact, the people who are the greatest risk to her are these private individuals, Mm -hmm. not necessarily clients, but also people who are sort of trying to protect the reputations of clients. And that's how Donald Sutherland enters her life. Um, And to also... Uh, draw a parallel to the Deuce pilot. My favorite scene was the you know the movie watching scene where there's 
basically um, it's paid companionship as opposed to um, paying for sex. Where um, Darlene is in a where, yeah. kind of a crappy apartment, some old yep. guy's apartment, and watching a movie with her. Yes, and this uh, the the clute scene that I I also found one of my favorites is where she's basically just doing kind of a slow strip tease for a man in a dark space, and there's ostensibly no no touching. That, to speak of. Is that the scene where she's sort of on this long verbal fantasy of yeah. being this like very, you know, high class, like it's just layer, broke layers of detail mm-hmm. and she's just slowly walking across the room. In my mind, and this might be projection because it's shot, it's shot so dark, mm-hmm. I picture that as sort of like a back room in the garment district in so, some guy's office. Yeah. It, 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 like it, after hours, no one else is around. It could be scary, but she's you know, has this mastery over it. Well, the acting in that, it's a credit to both uh, Darlene and Brie, you know, the acting that went into these characters, um, that um, when these scenes are taking place, you almost find out just as much about the client that isn't being spoken about because you understand that these are regulars and you understand that in order to come up with this fantasy that is being, you know, put out there, the situation that's being put out there, they have to intimately know that regular. And so you're almost finding out the backstory of the client while it not being about the client, which is fantastic. It is a you get this full sense because they take their time and you can get this sense of history, which is what I love about both the movie and frankly that scene in the pilot as well. It's a great storytelling device, mm-hmm. right? Just to hand it over to the performer and let her sort of like tell this fantasy on top of the fantasy of the scene that you're watching mm-hmm. and it gives you a sense of history and also their 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 abilities i, w- um, I don't want to give short shrift to the the other guys in the film like donald sutherland's detective clute is a private he's a private investigator lips. yeah and you know his romance with with brie who's sort of his object of inquiry right like at the first his relationship to her is like she's just another factor in this larger case that he's working. And then, of course, they develop a relationship with and one another so because of awkward. his surveillance of her. Right. But it's so awkward. Like those – all I could get I, – I couldn't wrap my mind around like that tiny little bed and that big, big man in that tiny little twin bed. And then they are having what appears to be the most awkward first, first night. It, it kind of was – just perfect. It was like sublime in its awkwardness. And I I mean, yeah, I just I can't say enough about that. My favorite scene with them, the scene that I think is the most intimate scene between them is actually out on the street mm. and where he hands Brie the tapes of her phone calls with the the man that he's pursuing in his case. It felt like such an acknowledgement of, like, I have this very intimate and possibly dangerous thing about you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not mine. That's yours. Yeah. You get to have it back. The, yeah. Their most intimate moment isn't like a profession of love or I'm going to save you from this life. Nope. The only hint that what after this life looks like is, I mean, it's also inseparable. Like, is the life that she's leaving New York? Is it being a call girl? Is it the bullshit of the model industry? Or is it the scariness that not... she just went through? Right, Her apartment's not safe anymore. Yeah. And the cat. And the cat. Oh, my God. I thought the cat died because I watched it at the film forum um, Forge in New York Drop Dead Film Festival, which was recently. And I was so nervous that the cat was dead. <laughs> it's such a strange thing to be that. But I, when she picked up, I think, her underwear, 
that's when I was like, I almost had a jump scare moment. It was just, yeah. The, the cat, I think, also lives on now in, like, one of the gifts of the film that, yeah. that you can find really easily. Um, it's It's a way to tell a story about New York um, that takes for granted that this kind of character, Brie Daniels, is, like, you know, not some marginal character on the fringes of the city. Mm-hmm. At this moment in time, she takes us through the city, whether that's the people who take the law into their own hands because they don't trust the police, whether that's the people at the model agency who are, you know, trying to exploit her, whether that's the phone booths, you know, being able to step outside of one world and enter another world by going right. to the phone booth. It's like kind of escort superhero moment. Right. Um, and, and the nightclub scenes and in the meatpacking district. Like, mm-hmm. I, I like Brie as every woman. Yeah. And I, and I think that's not something we've really seen much of since. And also um, how much she cares about the people that she worked with. Like how that look of absolute terror she has when she realizes that one of her friends has succumbed back to addiction, you know, and like, you know, I think also that was part, apparently, it, it, they, they don't explicitly allude to it, but that she also has addiction tendencies and, and kind of relapses. And she has how, like a social relapse when she goes to yeah. that club scene and is like, you know, I need things just get overwhelming with the danger that she's in. And she so she seeks out that older guy character. Right. Again. Yeah. And the preachiness is absent. The preachiness that would n- probably be in a later depiction of this kind of similar thing. The preachiness of, you know, don't go back to this old life of drugs and blah, blah, blah. They they are so subtle with it that you almost miss that narrative. Um, and uh, another thing I want to talk about is how. How I do believe that the Deuce took a lot of cues from 1970s filmmaking visually in the way that they frame things, where you'll have, you know, a character in one room, but the camera will be framing, so you see the room next to it as well as the room that they're in. Clute has a lot of that kind of framing. Um, in, it sort of implicates you as like yeah, a peeper on the scene. Right. These kind of like segmentation of the frame, um, although Clute also is like very famous for its unbelievable use of like close ups and kind of um, this kind of expressionistic way of making you feel like you're not quite sure what space you're in, mm-hmm. um, which uh, I think the deuce is a little bit more proscenium in its style, a lot more tracking shots, a lot more wides. Um, and we also but, have so many more characters in play. I mean, Clue is really a film about the private investigator and the call girl and and how their worlds collide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his, he doesn't even, he doesn't fit into any kind of cliches either. Like, Mm -hmm. I kept waiting for him to sort of be like the hard-boiled guy. That's not really him. He's just awkward. Yeah. He's just awkward. And, and his, his face, he looks, he looks old, but unwise. He, look, yeah. he looks older but unwiser. And not naive. Like, not, he's been yeah. through some shit. That's the sense. Yeah. But I, we don't really know what and how that... Yeah, they don't really... It's it's lovely because they kind of let you try to dissect for yourself what the backstory is. And he looks uncomfortable in every situation. It's not like he starts out in... Where is he supposed to Connecticut or something? They're, like, they're not in New York at first. And he doesn't He's look, at some dinner party where this case is, like, presented to him. Right. He doesn't look any more comfortable there. No, I don't know what his world is. I think right. his world might be him by himself. Mm-hmm. And now he's kind of thrust into this relationship that um, I don't know. I almost felt like, is this his first relationship? Yeah. <laughs> he never really related yeah. to a woman before. And they don't. They don't play it for, oh, wow, this is the guy she's spending her free time with, so she must really care about him, yeah. right? These are two people who were thrown together in a very scary situation who become temporary refuge, he remi- whatever that's worth. Right. He reminds me so much of Gene Hackman's character in The Conversation, just 
a person who doesn't really know how to interact with other people because of his job or something else that we don't even know about. Um, and if you haven't seen the conversation, that might be homework for a later date, not this week. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like this idea of having people be so kind of, for lack of a better word, introverted and not sure how to connect with others. And his job is the only way he knows how to connect. If and, and it's a and it's a it's a very compromised and connection, right? Yeah. It's surveillance. And conversation is the audio surveillance. He happens to be a private detective, but it's very similar. Let's keep on the the surveillance and uh, private eye and cop theme. Mm-hmm. Our homework for you for next week. <laughs> all cops, all cops. All cops, all the time. We want to thank uh, Alex Patala for sending us down this road. Uh, we are going to recommend two classic cop TV shows for you next week. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is uh, was uh, alluded to quite frequently in the interview, which is the Mod Squad pilot episode. But the Mod Squad is, I want to say its closest analog is like a 21 Jump Street. <laughs> and um, Where it's I, like cool cops. Cool cops. We're gonna we're gonna break the generation barrier. No more Jack Webb. We're gonna have three teenagers from uh, you know shady past who uh, throw off throw off a potential life of crime and then become cops because yeah. Um, and it's very um, the tagline was famously one white, one black, one blonde. I think that says a lot, um, but it'll give you a kind of interesting uh, segue from the late 60s to the early 70s, because that's what this show bridged with 68 to 72, and we will talk at length about it uh, next week. But the other piece, which is not L.A., but New York, is one of my favorite shows of all time, Barney Miller. And the scene in the deuce that made me think that this was appropriate was the scene at the precinct where it's all just a bunch of people behind desks doing paperwork. Shuffling papers in a <laughs> shabby, shabby room with those yep. like metal industrial desks. And yep. It hasn't been dusted in decades. Low budget. Yeah. Everything's just, yeah. A falling um, apart police department, a falling apart city. Yeah. And um, I actually assigned the particular episode I'm assigning to all of you, to Melissa, um, a few weeks ago, which is the Christmas episode. You will see the introduction of a street-based sex worker character in one of the funniest and sweetest uh, ways I've ever seen on like a regular network TV show. Yep. But not uncopy. It's still no. a cop show, They're, and they are still cops, and they still act cop-esque. Nobody has, like, a great social awakening. Mm-mm. It's just life in the few hours between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day mm-hmm. in this in this one room. And it's also wild to see a show like that all taking place in one room when you consider, like, how huge the deuce is, even mm-hmm. though they have to, like, fabricate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I love about it, and sort of to give folks this mm-hmm. as, a, as a frame, you know, Mod Squad takes place in L.A., but it also takes place in a time where most cop TV shows were in L.A., right? This is the era of Dragnet. This Dragnet. is the era of the LAPD sort of mythologizing themselves aggressively. The, this the, is the city. Yeah, the relationship <laughs> between, like, L.A. policing and L.A. Uh, myth-making yep. in, in film and television. A lot of people short hair and short pants. 
Yeah, it's yep. like these are the straight good cops. Whereas the mod squad kind of come in as like we're the cool hip cops, and we <laughs> yeah. can be both, uh, which Alex talked about at length. So I just did a little dance in my chair to like signify hipness. hip cops, hip cops. <laughs> and then and then Bonnie Miller, you know, we're swinging to New York, and I feel like I the, the cop shows I grew up on, not that I watched a ton of them, I just took for granted like New York is the city. New York is where the cop shows happen. Yeah, um, but it, you That's know, it, wolf for in, you. yeah, in the late '60s and the early '70s, like LA is still the center of of, of gravity there for. Mm-hmm. Cop drama, cop yeah. fiction. So we'll have a discussion of that next week. Go and uh, watch, 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 and we'll see you back here. This has been Terrific City. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And you can also leave us a review, which will help more people find us. We'll all be less lonely if you bring your friends. And thank you to those of you who have talked up this show. Uh, if you want to know more, you can go to terrific.city. You can read our show notes. You can see clips of all the things we've talked about, more background on homework assignments. You can also follow us on Twitter at TerrificCityPod and on Instagram at TerrificCity. And you can call us. Leave us a message at 347-380-5450 and we will play it on the air. And with that, we're going to say so so long from from Terrific City. They do this to me all the time. I don't know what the hell they do it for, but God damn it, if we can't come out of a slow record, I don't understand it. Is Don on the phone?